everybody. Welcome to the X Report. I am Raven X, and alongside me, as always, is Biggie, aka Ethan Tate, aka the Memphis Grizzlies good luck charm. How you doing today, Ethan? I'm good. Trying to figure out ways to get tickets to Game One. Be stressful, but I'm gonna be in the building, hopefully. As you should, because I mean. It's not going to be a playoff game without Big either. But speaking of playoffs, of course, we are going to break down each of the first round matchups as well as make our predictions for the for Friday night's uh, NBA play-in games. With regards to the NFL, the draft is just two weeks away. So, of course, we are going to look at some of the draft prospects we want our favorite teams to draft as well as talk about the expectations for the Raiders after signing Derek Carr to a three-year extension. But before we get to any of that, please be sure to check out the xreport.net. I repeat, the xreport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow X Report writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast and our YouTube channel entitled The X Report. So we're going to kick things off with a very sad um, note. Unfortunately, this past weekend, quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Dwayne Haskins, unfortunately passed away in an accident um, This in Miami. It was a very tragic thing. Several former teammates, friends, uh, coaches have made great remarks and just sent their condolences to the family so of course at the x report we as well would like to send our love and condolences to the family and friends of Dwayne haskins this is a terrible event um and like i said so definitely a senseless death um so definitely would like to send our condolences to that um but something else that really kind of sparked a bit of a controversy with his passing were the comments uh made by espn insider adam schefter who when originally um announcing the passing of Haskins made a tweet that said Dwayne Haskins a standout at Ohio State before struggling to catch on with Washington and Pittsburgh in the NFL died this morning when he got hit by a car in South Florida per his agent Cedric Saunders uh Haskins would have turned 25 years old on May 3rd his comments really sparked an uproar because it kind of not kind of but a lot of people thought that he was making light of the type of player that Dwayne Haskins was as if it had any bearing on the type of human being it was another former Ohio State quarterback Cardell Jones took to Twitter to say how about Dwayne Haskins son husband Buckeye brother friend beloved teammate has passed away TF his career ups and downs have to do with him unfortunately losing his life STFU let his family and friends grieve instead of throwing shade praying for the Haskins family um Adam Schefter was not the only one to make some ignorant comments Gil Brandt another longtime NFL insider made some really uncomfortable remarks about Haskins referring to him as living his life as if he was trying to die and constantly bringing up his decision to leave Ohio State early as if a decision he made five, six years ago has any bearing on what has transpired in his life now. But Ethan, just with the media coverage and definitely the questionable comments about Haskins' death, how do you think that this reflects on the media and what do you think that the media overall could be doing differently? Um, I think this is a negative light on the media um, because the comments that were made by both men were just simply inhumane. Whereas this man just lost his life and you're calling him a struggle. Like, you're bringing up the fact that he struggled to make two teams in the NFL. Like, at this point, that uh, that comment shouldn't even have been made to begin with because that is a, like, his NFL career at that point is a far less um, in superior moment to what's going on. 
tragic statement death. You don't even have to bring up that stuff. And to say that he lived his life like he was going, like he was, um, like he was going to die. Like, who says those type of things? I think this is one of those, I think this is another case of like, in some instances where we have a lot of outdatedness in the form of sports, whereas, granted, I understand Schefter, he is probably one of the more notable names associated with the um, NFL, but still, like, that's very inconsiderate of everything that they may live for. Like, granted, he might not have had the uh, luxurious career like a lot of people assume that he would, but he still is a human being. Yeah, I'm in 100% agreement with you. I think that, and we're going to touch on it a little bit later, but like, I think that as football fans and members of the media, at some point, even if it's subconsciously, we forget that these athletes are human beings. We see them as these superheroes who go out on the field or on the court on a weekly basis, and we just expect them. We forget that they are people outside of when they're wearing their jersey or that uniform. They have real lives, they have families, they have loved ones. Their life does not totally revolve around sports. And so because of that, I think that this, for Adam Schefter, I feel like, I understand you wanna mention you know, his NFL career, but just because he struggled to make teams, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with his passing? Like, I understand when you think of Dwayne Haskins prior to this, you may think, yeah, he was kind of, I don't want to call him a bust, but he did not live up to expectations. But even still, this is not the right time to bring it up. So, yeah, no, I think that it really just comes down to kind of forgetting that these athletes, yes, we view them as athletes. Yes, for some people, they're sports heroes, but they're also human beings. And we have to remember that even in times, especially in times like this, when tragic and terrible things happen. Um, There's no real good segue from this. So we're just going to go ahead and move on to the college football player spotlight. Um, As I mentioned, in just a couple of weeks, the NFL draft is going to be taking place. It's one of my favorite sporting events of the year. And because you get to see new players, new excitement come to your favorite football team. So what we are going to do now is give three players, or in your case, Ethan, if you don't have three specific players, at least three position groups that you want your favorite team to draft. So would you like to go first? You want me to go first? Uh, we, can, we can alternate. All right, bet. So for me at number one, I don't know if this will happen. Um, Baltimore has some ammunition to trade up a little bit in the first if they want to, but I would love cornerback Derek Stingley. Yes, my LSU bias is kicking in too, but I mean, if you watch the tape of Derek Stingley when he was a freshman on, in my opinion, the greatest college football team that ever stepped on the field, you would see Derek Stingley was the best player in the nation. Now, I know his uh, sophomore and junior years, he was dealing with some injuries and the play was not as spectacular, but even still, you watch Derek Stingley and you see he is a corner's back's corner he is terrific in coverage he has great hands he's a willing tackler despite not being the biggest guy on the field he carries himself like the best and I feel like when you're in Baltimore you need guys with that attitude you need guys who aren't afraid to step up to anybody because mind you not only did he play at SEC where he had to see guys like Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson on a weekly basis but he also played in the SEC where he had to see cats like DK AJ Brown Alabama's great wide receivers etc So I feel like he'd be a great candidate to come to Baltimore and really help boost up our already good secondary. 
Yeah, for me, I'm going to say number one, I would go with linebacker Nakobe Dean from Georgia. I don't, I highly doubt we'll be able to get him. But one of the things that we've lacked, in my opinion, is a standout linebacker. We have a great first seven from a defensive line standpoint. And we also have some pretty good, um, we had some pretty good weapons at linebacker, but we, we didn't resign, we didn't resign Rashawn Evans. We let Jayon Brown go. Um, so we have a hole in the middle of our defense. And in my opinion, he's the best linebacker in this draft. Yeah, I agree with you. I love me some Nicobe Dean. He's actually my number two guy for just about everything that you really said. I love Patrick Queen. I do. Don't want to ever get that misconstrued. But Baltimore wants a 3-4, which means that we work best when we have two really good interior linebackers. Um, we did re-sign Josh Bonds, which is a nice short-term opportunity. And he could start for us, but I feel like with the leadership and just the overall boom that uh, Nicobe Dean brought to Georgia's defense, I feel like he could do the exact same thing in Baltimore. Uh, for me, number two, I'm going to say quarterback Desmond Ritter out of Cincinnati. Granted, I know that we have Ryan Tannehill, and he, his future in Tennessee is shaky. But I think he'll be able to bounce back this season. Um, but why not go ahead and potentially have a contingency plan drafted early in case, say, next year or two years from now, he's not our starting quarterback. And I think Desmond Ritter, he's a, he has some of the tools to Ryan where he's an athlete. He, I forget what his 40 was, but he ran a decent 40-yard dash. He has a capable arm, and he's just a guy that – I can see being they can fit in into the tough structure that Tennessee likes to play with. You want to know something that kind of surprised me? I was listening to a draft podcast. Did you know Ryan Tannehill was thirty four? I did not. Yeah, like, I forgot he came in in the twenty twelve class that you know had RG three, Russ, Andrew Luck. I forgot he would. He was that old. And I know in quarterbacks, I mean, we see cats like you know Tom Brady playing forever, and um, what. Aaron Rodgers is, what, 38, 39, something like that. So I guess we've kind of gotten used to it. But I didn't really trip off Ryan Tannehill being as old as he was. All right, and so number three for me, it was a battle between interior offensive lineman or an edge rusher. But I'm going interior line. I was saying uh, Tyler Linderbaum out of Iowa. Uh, after losing Bradley Bozeman in free agency, which low-key I wouldn't have been mad if we brought him back. I don't necessarily trust, uh, trust Pat McCarry, uh to be our center. Um, he's been solid over the past couple of years, but he has not exactly been the most consistent, whereas Tyler Linderbaum, throughout his whole career at Iowa, which we know they push out great offensive linemen, um, he's been a standout guy. And I feel like, especially if Baltimore was to trade down, he'd be able to be there in the middle towards later part of the draft. So we would not only be able to accumulate other picks, but also get an anchor for our offensive line. Um, for me, number three, I want to go O-line, but I'm going to go with another position on me. I'm going to say wide receiver from Memphis, Calvin Austin. And the reason I'm saying this is because I think we have our number one and number two wide receivers in A.J. Bryan and Robert Woods. But the thing that I feel like we've lacked has been a true third receiver in the slot. And I think that Calvin Austin is a guy – Yes, he's smaller in size, but they won't. I feel like they won't affect him as much as he's a star receiver because he's shifty. He's one of the faster receivers in the time at the combine, and he's a guy that's not afraid to make big catches. 
So I would love to see him get drafted by the Titans and become their wide receiver three. I would love that for you guys too. So out of Desmond Ritter, um, Nicobe Dean, and Calvin Austin, which one, which player do you think more realistically you guys would draft? Uh, probably Calvin Austin because I think Nicobe Dean, I think he'll be gone before we get to him in the first round. If he's not, then I, I wouldn't be surprised if they pulled the trigger. Desmond Ritter, I don't know if the Titans are look really in this draft or looking to draft the quarterback. But I think that Calvin Austin could be somebody that they'd be like, hey, we could take a chance on him because I think he'll be somewhere in the second round. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'd probably go Tyler Lindenbaum just because Sting, I think he's going to move go top 10. Um, with regards to Nicobe Dean, if we trade back, I can see it happening. But Lindenbaum seems like, seems like the easy choice. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to some free agency buzz. Let's start off. In on the West Coast, talking some Debo Samuel. So we saw it a couple months ago when um, Kyler Murray was not the happiest with the Arizona Cardinals and deleted all Cardinals-related posts from his social media. Well, San Francisco's Debo Samuel has seemingly done the same thing with the 49ers, um, including changing his profile picture, unfollowed the 49ers account and fan accounts, and deleted just over 80 uh, post. He's looking to get a new contract, and reportedly he's trying to get 25 mil a year. At first, that sounds like a lot, but considering the other big deals receivers have been getting in the past few weeks, I can understand where he's coming from. Um, interestingly enough, the uh, head coach, Kyle Shanahan, was asked about listening to offers for Debo Samuel, and he said that the team is willing to trade anyone for the right price. So, Ethan... How do you think things are going to work out with Devo and the 49ers? Do you think that they're really willing to trade him, or are they just saying that to try to act like they have some leverage? I think that they might actually be willing to trade him. I think it's a situation to where um, they're obviously listening to trade talks with Jimmy G. So I think they might just go ahead and say, like, hey, we're going to blow this up. We're going to see what we have in trade names. And why not trade Debo Samuel now when you can potentially get the most value from him? Because he had his best season yeah. so far as a professional as a professional football player. So you can potentially trade him now, get some uh, a decent haul, get some decent draft capital, capital, and move and continue to um and continue to maybe still be a viable team in the NFC West. You might not be a playoff contender, but you might be a um. I think that you made a really good point about, I mean, this is the most value you could get for them. And looking at the 49ers, they don't have a first-round pick this year because last year they traded up to number three to get Trey Lance. So, I mean, and this is going to be a pretty solid wide receiver draft. So if they really were to trade Debo for, I feel like they could get a one for him. They could move up and try to get a wide out. I don't think that any wide out you would get is necessarily – as versatile as Debo Samuel, because if you ask me, I feel like this past year, Debo Samuel was easily the most valuable player on the team. So I think that that's going to be a big blow, especially because with Trey Lance, you want to have him to have as much weapons as possible. So on that side, I don't know if I would trade him. But like you mentioned, I mean, it would make a lot of sense because right now, if you would ask me a year ago, Debo would probably go, if he was to be traded, maybe a three, maybe a four. But now he's easily a first-round pick. Um, he's easily worth being traded for a first-round pick. So I could 
the more I think about it, the more I could see it because I get 25 mil is a lot for a player who it has been good, but last year was the first time he was really spectacular. So I see what you're saying there. All right, so let's say Debo Samuel is traded. Who do you think will pull the trigger? Yeah, that would actually – man, that's actually a really good fit. To be different, though, if they were to decide to trade him in the NFC, I think I'd have to say the Green Bay Packers. Biggest reason being Packers lose Devontae Adams. They really haven't done much to really replace Devontae Adams. They even also lost MVS, which not saying that's going to be a huge impact standpoint, but if you look at their receiving core, they're pretty light right now. And bringing in a player like Debo Samuel, who they literally saw firsthand give them the Blues and the rest of the conference the Blues, it would make a lot of sense. Plus, they have a lot more money to give because Devontae Adams is gone. They got Aaron Rodgers locked up. Don't have to worry about that. And so they're pretty desperate for a number one wide out. And I think that Debo Samuel could come in and fit that role pretty seamlessly. But all right, let's talk about players who don't have to worry about contract drama. Uh, Las Vegas Raiders quarterback um, Derek Carr signed a three-year, $121.5 million contract extension, which also includes a no-trade clause. Apparently, he made his deal friendly enough to where the team could still bring in players. Um, he referenced the team uh, losing Khalil Mack a few years back as a big reason why he wanted to do that so the team could continue to keep solid players. Um, when asked about his deal, and he also, of course, was asked about playoff experience because last year was his first time being in the playoffs, to which he said, the question of can I win a playoff game yeah, that's ridiculous. Now, this year, when you look at the moves that the Raiders have made, they are significantly better than the team that made the playoffs last year. So, Three years from now, how far does Derek Carr lead the Raiders? Are they going to the playoffs every year? Possibly a Super Bowl contender? What do you think happens over these next few year seasons? I can see them. I think I can see them making the playoffs every year. You know, one of those years, maybe sprinkling them in an AFC championship game. Um, especially with the roster that they have, I think that they're suited for a, a nice-sized run over the course of these next couple years. only thing is, is Yeah, and honestly, I would probably argue about the Chiefs making good additions because, like, right now I feel like roster-wise the Chiefs are at a disadvantage, but I still, I mean, it's hard to go against Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. But, yeah, I mean, not even just the division. I mean, the AFC in general has gotten significantly tougher. But, I mean, as you mentioned, playing in the AFC West, you got to go up against a pretty big dog. So I could see them making the playoffs – at least once, um, at least once. I don't know if I would call them a Super Bowl contender as of now. I think definitely could make it to the divisional round, but in terms of being a Super Bowl contender, I just don't know if I trust them enough to get that far. But, I mean, at the very least, they should get at least one or two playoff wins from Derek Carr. 
All right, speaking of another quarterback who say what you will about Baker Mayfield, but he's been pretty upfront about his feelings regarding the Cleveland Browns quarterback situation. As we all know, the team told him that they were going to ride it out with him, they were going to stick with him. Then less than a month later, they trade for Deshaun Watson, pretty much leaving uh, Baker Mayfield's career in limbo. He recently did a podcast with the You Never Know um he usually did an interview with the You Never Know podcast, and here are just a few quotes um, from things that he said. When he was asked about where he's going to play next, he said, if this would have been a week and a half ago, I would have said Indianapolis. Then he said Seattle's probably the next likely option. Uh, he said, I have no regrets of my time in Cleveland uh, for what I tried to give that place. True Clevelanders and true Browns fans know that. He also said, when I wasn't performing on the field, that's when it started to go downhill, when it started hindering my play. That's when I started losing my own self-confidence and losing myself. It was rough. Um, another comment, I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't get caught up in the negativity during the last year. He said, um, on being coaches hands-on, on coaches being hands-on and accountable, he said it varies, depends on where you are. Some locker rooms get it, some don't. I'm excited to move on to the next chapter where hopefully it is understood. He said a lot in that interview, and I watched a good bit of it, and personally, I understand where he's coming from because I'm sure it is frustrating to be told one thing from a team and then they go out and trade for a new quarterback who is, as we all know, better than him. Don't get me wrong, I don't think Baker is necessarily good. I think the Browns made the right decision in trying to replace him. But with Baker's future being in so limbo, what do you think's next for Baker Mayfield? Where does he go from here? Uh, I think he's going to either end up the starting quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, or he's going to get traded to another franchise. He's, oh, he's going to get traded to a franchise and become an overpriced backer. Or you never know. It could be a scenario where they say the Pittsburgh Steelers, like their only starting quarter, their starting quarterback right now is Richard Trubisky, and we don't know what he's going to look like. So it could be we. I wouldn't be surprised if next thing I know, I see a trade pop up if Baker goes to Pittsburgh and it's an open competition for the starting job in Pittsburgh, simply because. They don't really have a starting caliber. In my opinion, they don't have a starting caliber quarterback right now. And Baker, he isn't he isn't the best quarterback, but I think that he's a capable enough starter to still be a starting quarterback in the NFL. I think Baker's one of those guys who, if he were to get out of Cleveland, he would play better. I just think it it's just not a good fit. It's not a good marriage there. And so, but it, the problem is he's slated to make $18 million this season, which is a big turn off to teams because they don't want to pay him that much, especially because most places that he could potentially be traded to, he wouldn't be the outright starter. Um, Seattle is a place they could possibly do it, but who's to say they won't try to give Drew Locke a shot? I mean, worst comes to worst, they'll just end up having a high draft pick for next year. Um, but Seattle would probably be a likely option, as he mentioned Pittsburgh, I don't know if Pittsburgh would do it just because they've seen him for the past four years and more times than not, they've kicked his butt. I agree with you, though, that, you know, looking at um, Mitchell Trubisky and Mason Rudolph, I don't love the Steelers quarterback room, but I wouldn't be surprised if they traded up for a quarterback. Um, so, yeah, it's like Baker's time right now is pretty in limbo unless he was 
not he was, but if the team was willing to take on some of that contract to get him traded, I could see it happening. But in terms of him definitely being the starter someone else, somewhere else, I'm not. I'm not totally, totally buying it. Speaking of not buying it, uh, Tyron Matthew, one of the more surprising players to still be on the free agent market, opened up about this Chiefs decision not to um, offer him a contract. Uh, he said that he was heartbroken that the Chiefs decided to move on from him and claims that he would have signed for the same deal that the team signed former Texan safety Justin Reed to. I believe Justin Reed signed for, what, three-year, 30 mil, something around that. So, Ethan, in your opinion, do you feel like the Chiefs made a mistake by not bringing back the Honey Badger? Yeah, I think they made a big mistake because, for one, they need as much defensive help as they can. And Tyron Matthews, the guy, that he he's not just an on-the-field guy. He's a locker room guy. He's a guy that can, especially when you're looking at the situation with the Chiefs where they lost, where they lost, where they lost Tyreek Hill. And, like, that's a big part of their team dynamic. You want to kind of keep some of the same people around to keep that continuity. And Tyron Matthews is a baller. He might not be the same impact, the same type of player that he was in previous years due to, you know, older age and injuries and things of that nature. But he's still a guy that can make plays. So I think that they made a bad decision. I think they made a big decision, a mistake as well, especially just considering – Think back on what the Chiefs' defense was like before Tyron Matthew got there as a, as compared to when he got there. He added so much juice to that team, not just because of his play, but because of his leadership, because of his attitude, because his desire to no matter what, he was going to make a play for his team. You take Tyron Matthew off of that defense, and truthfully, besides Chris Jones, I can't say anybody else who had that same impact, who had that same passion for the game. And so taking him off, I think that that's going to be a huge blow to this defense that truly does not have much leadership and still is not that good. I like Justin Reed a lot, and I think that Justin Reed can play a serviceable role. But just in terms of overall leadership, I don't think he's going to have that same command over the defense the way that Tyron Matthew did. So I think that it's I think it's going to come back to bite them. I feel like having Tyron Matthew help them clean. Um, cover up a lot of mistakes, particularly on that back end. And so not having that, I think it's going to be a big blow. But all right, one last piece before we play our game of believable or buffoonery. We got to talk about Gronk, who is one of those guys who we always have the question, will he or won't he play football? He did make it clear. He said, there's one thing, if I do play football, though, it would definitely be with the Bucks. So now the question for Gronk remains, do I retire or do I play for the Bucks? Which one do you think he's going to end up doing? Playing for the books. I think that I, I honestly think it's a situation as long as Tom Brady plays, Gronk's going to suit up. And it's when Tom Brady retires officially, that's when Gronk is going to officially retire. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I feel like if he wasn't going, I feel like he had knew in the back of his mind Tom wasn't going to stay retired. Because I feel like had Gronk, I mean not Gronk, had Tom stay retired, Gronk would have retired a while ago. So I think he's going to end up coming back, if not for another year or two, especially because, I mean, Loki, he's got a pretty cushy job. Him and Tom know each other like the back of his hand. He knows what he has to do. Um, and then the Bucks still have other tight ends there, so it's not like, and other weapons, so it's not like he's getting the ball thrown at him 50 million times a game. So 
I think he's going to end up going back to the Bucks. All right, let's go ahead and play Believable or Buffoonery, starting off with former uh, Jets and now current Panthers quarterback Sam Darnold. When Sam Darnold, uh, when the Jets uh, made the decision to trade Sam Darnold to the Panthers last season, reportedly Sam Darnold told the team that they were making a mistake by sending him to Carolina to draft the new quarterback. He said that on the Bustin' with the Boys podcast and also mentioned that he felt like he was a good quarterback in this league. Let's just focus on the first part of things. Believable or buffoonery. The Jets were better off sticking with Sam Darnold than drafting Zach Wilson. Uh, I'm not going to say that better off because in my opinion, Sam Darnold and Zach Wilson are similar in the sense of they're two talented quarterbacks who showed flashes, but they haven't been consistent. So I think they would be in the same position that they were in whether they kept Sam Darnold or they drafted Zach Wilson. That's fair because, I mean, even based off how Sam Donald played this past year when he was healthy, the first two, three games were cool, and then he kind of went to this old Sam Donald-like behaviors and started turning the ball over a lot. And then Zach Wilson, I mean, I think he had, what, nine passing touchdowns and 11 picks, something like that. He wasn't spectacular either. But so I think it's it's honestly about even. I don't think he really would have gotten better or worse had Sam Donald stayed. All right, let's go ahead and move on to another quarterback. As we all know, Kirk Cousins re-signed to another contract extension with the Minnesota Vikings and said that he would like to retire with the team, but he understands that he has to earn that by playing well. Believable or buffoonery, Kirk Cousins will retire a Viking. I'm calling buffoonery. Yeah, I'm calling buffoonery as well. I think that his play on the field, he's not bad, but I don't think it's going to garner the attention to make him last long in the organization unless at some point he decides that he'll, he'll be fine with becoming a backup. Yeah, I think, and I don't think he wants to be a backup because, I mean, like you said, he's a serviceable starter. It could be a lot worse, but I feel like, for example, if this year they don't make the playoffs, I 100% believe he's gone. I feel like they're just going to either draft somebody or they're going to try to bring somebody else in because, I mean, this team has too much talent to remain in this stagnant place. All right, let's talk about one of our guys, Russell Wilson, who in Denver, we know he had some nice toys to play with in Seattle, but he's got a nice array of toys to play with in Denver as well. Uh, here, Ian Heritage of Pro Football Focus Fantasy said, there's a chance that the Broncos collectively give him the best weapons of his career. With Cortland Sutton, Tim Patrick, Jerry Judy, Javante Williams in the backfield. They do have some solid wideouts for uh, Russ. So, believable or buffoonery, Denver has surrounded Russell Wilson with the best weapons of his career. Oh. I'm going to say buffoonery. Yeah, I'm going to say it as well because I think a lot of people forget about that era where he had Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett early on mm-hmm. in Tyler Lockett's career. And he also had some really good tight ends. The only thing was the tight ends couldn't stay healthy. And he also had one of the best running backs in the NFL in Marshawn Lynch. Yeah, Beast. Yeah, Beast Bowl, his presence pretty much, for me, that's what tips it off for like, because the Broncos do have solid receivers, but. Jerry Judy has been a slightly disappointed. He's expected to do better. Tim Patrick is fine, but no, nah, I'm not. I'm 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 gonna say buffoonery for now. They can always add people, but for right now, I'm not totally sold. All right, let's go ahead and talk about 
Jordan Love with Green Bay. The Patrick's the Packers CEO Mark Murphy on Jordan Love's future said, "We think he can be a good player, but we haven't seen enough. So I think this preseason will be good for him." Believable or buffoonery, Jordan Love still has a shot to be the Packers' starting quarterback at some point. Uh, I'm going to say buffoonery because Aaron Rodgers is still there now. If Aaron Rodgers gets traded, or let's say he opened the sides like, hey, my time as a, as a quarterback is done and he retires, then I can see it. But for the time being, I'm going to have to say no. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna say buffoonery as well, especially because we know Aaron just signed that contract extension. I think it's for at least a couple more years. Which, let's be honest, once that fifth year option rolls around, you're not gonna give it to Jordan Love because he hasn't he started one game for you throughout that time. And unless Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, he's not gonna see significant starting time, if any starting time in Green Bay. So, honestly, if I were them, I'd probably try to cut my losses. If, honestly, if they would have tried to trade him this offseason, I would have understood just because, I mean, he's still very young. So maybe he'd be better off in a situation as opposed to you wait longer and he hasn't started and he just does a whole bunch of nothing. But all right, last question before we move on to the NBA. Keenan Allen is one of those cats who, whenever you talk about the most underrated wide receivers or you see the post about it, his name is typically going to pop up. And Keenan Allen seems pretty sick of it. He said, the fact that I keep getting put on this post lets everybody know that it's for clickbait. 100 catches, 1,000 yards this the past five years, and five Pro Bowls straight to follow up. Check your top five list and see if they have done the same. Stop creating a perspective and show the facts. While the facts are facts, believable or buffoonery, Kenny Allen is still an underrated receiver. Yeah, I'm saying believable as well because the fact that you have to remind people of that plays a role into why you're underrated because his numbers are terrific. But truthfully, am I putting Keenan Allen in my top five wideouts? No. Is he in my top ten? Maybe. But I would really have to think about it. And that... And that just goes to the definition of being underrated. Like, we know that you're talented. Everybody knows that you're good. But in terms of, like, the superstars, his name doesn't get put up there. So, yeah, no offense. You are underrated. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you're not what people think of when you first get to the top five. Sorry. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the NBA. Ethan, what are your top three takeaways of this past week of action, which hasn't been too many games because we got, you know, the regular season finale in the first, in the play-in. Oh, uh, top three takeaways are the, the play-in tournament. I'm still pro play-in tournament. I think it's a good idea. Number two, um, that Boston and Nick series is going to be very interesting depending on the timetable of several injured players potentially returning. And number number one, I guess you could say, is that the this is probably gonna be one of the most entertaining playoffs we've had in a while. Maybe since last year. Which is still a while. Yeah. 
I agree. All right, so let's talk our Mamba players of the week. For me, coming out of the Eastern Conference, I'm going Kyrie Irving. Pretty much all game, the Nets, I mean, not the Nets, the Cavs could not do anything with that man. Ended the game with 34 points, 12 assists, shot a remarkable 12 of 15 from the field, Was uh, shot 50% from three. I mean, I figured the Nets were going to win that game anyway, but the way that Kyrie Irving just came out there and went off, I mean, I think it's a testament to his talent. And mind you, a month ago, had the vaccination rules still been in place in New York, he wouldn't even been able to play. So just being able to just see, once again, see the value of having a player like him on the court, he's got to be my Easter Mamba. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Kyrie Irving. And also, he's doing his wild fasting for Ramadan, which is also a feat in and of itself. Absolutely. But, yeah, I watched, I basically watched the whole game, and, like, he was just unguardable, and he was making tough shot after tough shot, and he, like, it's just, he's just a wizard, that's the best way to say it. He is, he definitely is. Alright, let's move on to our Western Mamba of the week. For me, I'm keeping it with the playing games, and I'm gonna go with, um, D'Angelo Russell, another player who pretty much balled out against the Clippers, despite them being a pretty solid defensive team. I know that Anthony Edwards dropped 30, but, I mean, he was close behind him. He dropped 29 while also shooting over 55% from the field and did a little bit of everything. And I think that one could argue he really helped carry the team to victory, especially because Cat was an absolute non-factor. So I'm going to show love to D'Lo, even though I think he's kind of full of crap about the team making the playoffs because after the game he was like, we're not excited, we're supposed to be here meeting the playoffs, whichever. Let's be honest. The, my, the Timberwolves are not a team we expect to make it, but shout out to D'Lo. Oh, me, I'm going to say And then our rookie Mamba of the week. Not many rookies did much in the play-in. So I'm going to go back to the regular season. And I'm going to show some love to Jalen Green, who was our rookie Mamba last week. Because the man is a bucket. And the uh, season finale dropped 41 against the Hawks. I know he's not going to win rookie of the year or anything. But he ended his season on a great note. And is going to be doing a lot. Well, expected to do a lot of good things going into his sophomore year. Stuff. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the NBA playoff picture. So let's start things off with who we think are going to win tomorrow night's play-in game, starting with the Atlanta Hawks versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. I'm, I'm going to go Hawks. All right, between the New Orleans Pelicans and the Los Angeles Clippers, I'm going Clippers. I'm going, yeah, I'm going Clippers. All right, so with that done, 
let's go ahead and talk the NBA playoff picture. So starting things off with the Eastern Conference, assuming things are the way that we just predicted them to be. So it would be the Miami Heat versus the Atlanta Hawks. How far you think that series going? I'd say Heat in six. I'm saying Heat in four. Heat in four. That's fair. The, Actually, no, I'll say I'll say Heat in five. But yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. And uh, the reason I say Heat in four is because I think that the Heat they have like they're just a team for the dogs, and the Hawks aren't in full strength. If the Hawks had John Collins, I would say I probably would say Heat. Five or six, mm-hmm. but I think that just the overall, um, like the Hawks are just going to be overall outclassed in this matchup. That's fair. I think that I think that the reason why I'm saying in five is just because I feel like Trey Young is going to be able to will his team to a good enough performance to where they can, at the very least, make something shake. I think that they'll have the opportunity to really. Sorry, my nose. I think that they'll have opportunity. He'll give them an opportunity to kind of, for lack of a better word, definitely be more competitive. Do I think he continue that for a full series? Absolutely not. But for at least the time being, I think that they can make something happen. All right, moving on to the number two seed, Boston Celtics taking on the number seven seed, um, Brooklyn Nets. Who Bruce Brown made some pretty, uh, pretty inflammatory comments mentioning. Uh, the loss of Robert Williams in the paint and said they have less presence in the paint and we could attack Al Horford and Theus. So them not having Robert Williams is huge. Uh, Kevin Durant clearly backed that up a little bit and said, we don't need to say shit like that. Let's just go out there and hoop. So do you feel like those comments are going to give an added boost to the Celtics? And how do you think that's going to affect the series, if at all? Well, for one, he just... It just got reported today that Robert Williams might be back in time for this for that series. Um, so if I'm going to go from the rattle, if he's not playing, I still think that the Knicks will pull it out simply because you, they have the two. Granted, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are two amazing players, but they aren't Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Right. And I understand that the Celtics have been the best defensive team in the NBA. But when you the playoffs are essentially who has the best player or players on the court. And when you have two proven champions in Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, I like their chances. So I kinda I'm gonna go I'm gonna go next in six or seven. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I'm gonna say Nets in six too. I do think that I do think that the presence, if Robert Williams comes back, I think that that will play a really big role. But, I mean, let's not forget. I mean, Kevin Durant is one of the most lethal shooters in the league, and Kyrie Irving doesn't need to be in the paint to be dynamic. So, it's not like – I'll say this. For players like Bruce Brown and, you know, their uh, post players, it may have a big effect. But, I mean, for their two stars, it's not going to have the biggest – uh, make the biggest difference. But, as you mentioned, the Celtics are a really good defensive team. So, it's definitely going to force – the um force the Nets to have to play outside in as opposed to inside out like they like most teams would like to but I'm I'm in agreement with you I'm going Nets in six all right let's go ahead Milwaukee Bucks number three seed taking on the Buck I mean the uh Chicago Bulls we both said we think Bucks win it I'm gonna say Bucks in five how about you I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna say honestly I might say Bucks in four 
and simply because I think that the pieces that the Bulls are missing in like Lonzo and and Lonzo and some of the other injured players that they have, I think is going to be vital. And the Bulls have been on a bad streak of losing, like to the top tier opponents. And this Bucks team, a lot of people are sleeping on them because of the situation in Brooklyn and how people are overlooking Milwaukee. Like, Milwaukee has been a dominant team this whole year. So, I think the Bucks are probably going to pull it out in four, but I might just go ahead and say five just to be safe. Yeah, because I think we'll at least get a star-like performance from DeMar DeRozan because he's been one of those guys, yeah, the team may lose, but he's looked pretty darn good. But, yeah, I just – Top to bottom, I just don't know if they can really handle what the Bucks are going to give them um, offensively, especially because, I mean, Giannis is, Giannis is Giannis. And right now, I don't think they have somebody who can really match up with him defensively. All right, last series, we have the Philadelphia 76ers versus the Toronto Raptors. This is, this is going to be an interesting series. I think it's going to be a lot better than people expect, but I'm going to say, I'm going to say Sixers in six. Yeah, I'm going to say sixes and six as well, especially given the fact that when they go to Toronto, they're going to be without, at least for the time being, a known commodity in Matisse Bible because of his vaccination status. And he's been a, he's a key defender for their team. And you need him to slow down guys like Fred Vinsky, Gary Trent, um, you know, OG Ananobi. So you're going to need his presence. But I still think that depending on – and it also really depends on what James Harden shows up. That's because a if fact. We get the, if we get the James Harden that we've been getting for a major portion of this season, then it might end up being seven, and they might – it means like they might lose it. But if they get the James Harden that we've seen in previous – at least in previous regular seasons where he can be an effective player – it might end up being a sweep because I think Joel and B is going to dominate because they honestly don't have anybody of substantial size that can guard them mm-hmm. because, like, I don't know. I think they moved um, Pascal Siakam to the five because they started Scotty Barnes at the four. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, Siakam's too small. You're bringing in Prince Jachua off the bench. He's too small. But I think it just – I think it's going to be an interesting matchup. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, too. And I think you brought up a really good point of, like, what James Harden are you going to get? Because we have noticed um, throughout most of his time in the playoffs, the James Harden you get is not the one you get in the regular season. And that might be a good thing this year because James Harden has been a bit up and down this season. But, yeah, I mean, for this series, I think that even if they don't get the best James Harden, they can still be pretty solid. But... Other series, I think that not having James Harden at his best could really affect this team. All right, let's go ahead to move on to the Eastern Conference, starting off with the Phoenix Suns. You and I both said we think the Clippers win. So Clippers versus the Suns, who you got? I think I got Suns in fourth. Wow, okay. I I would – okay, it's – for me it kind of comes with the asterisk because it's – is Kawhi coming back? If Kawhi comes back, oh, he's not. All right then. Well, so, so the th- I think the thing is, they said the only way Kawhi will come back is they make it pass at least the first round. Oh, okay then. Well, yeah, I I I agree with you then. I'll go uh I'll go Clippers. I mean Suns in four then too. Cause I mean 
Paul George, we saw Paul George was a killer against the Timberwolves, but his teammates just didn't didn't help out enough. And mind you, that's the Timberwolves. You're doing it against the Suns, who at times would look like the best team in the league. So, yeah, I agree with you here. I'm going Suns and four. All right, Memphis Grizzlies versus the Minnesota Timberwolves. I got I got Grizzlies in five. I got Grizzlies in six. Okay. And the reason I'm saying six is because throughout the course of this series, the um, season series, the Timberwolves has been one of the only teams that's been a problem for the Memphis Grizzlies. They through the season series 2-2. Both teams won all the both teams won their games at home. They're also they were also one of the three teams that made John Morant look like he wasn't superhuman where he only averaged like 20 and 7. And he shot, he really shot like his worst field goal percentage against them. They had, like, they're a tough matchup. Yeah. Granted, I do know that one of the, one of the standout points is this, every game that they played this season, they did, the Grizzlies did not have Dylan Brooks, and mm-hmm. that can play a vital role. But I still think it's going to be a tough, a tough, um, just a tough series because, they, the Grizzlies and Timberwolves, they have some form of beef. We have Patrick Beverly that's talking crazy. He's almost hurt job a couple, you know, previous regular season game earlier in the season. And I think it's just going to be two young teams that's hungry and want to win and, like, they're going to go out there and leave everything on the court and potentially could create a rivalry for years in the future. Yeah, I could definitely see that because, I mean, a lot of great rivalries really start off in the playoffs, or at least have their biggest moments in the playoffs. I mean, you can look at, from a football perspective, Baltimore and Tennessee, who really didn't see much of each other in the regular season, but since the playoffs, it seems like they play each other almost here, and that's created a bit of a robbery. It's kind of different between the Timberwolves and the Grizzlies, but depending on how this series goes, that could definitely create some even more bad blood from this past season. So, yeah, I could definitely see that. I think having Dylan Brooks back will definitely help add to the uh, Grizzlies defense, which I think is going to play a big role in helping to kind of slow down D'Lo or Anthony Edwards. And but yeah, I still I still think Grizzlies pull it out. I hope they do. I'll be I'm not gonna lie, I'd be pretty salty if they didn't, because that's who I'm rooting for. Since the Lakers did a whole bunch of nothing. All right, so Memphis, I'm sorry. Moving on to the Golden State Warriors taking on the Denver Nuggets, a series that I mentioned even before the playoffs got underway that I was really looking forward to. I got Warriors in six. Yeah, I got. I'll say six. Yeah, I'm in the Grizz. I have Warriors in six simply because I think Macaulay Yogi's is going to be able to will the Nuggets to a game or two. But I think that if you're getting a healthy still, um, Clay Thompson in, at the latter portion of the season, he's shown that he's kind of been more like his his former self before he had those horrific injuries. And we have Draymond that's showing that he can still be a a very viable piece of the team. So, and I honestly, it just boils down to the fact that the roster constructed around the Pelliogas without Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray just isn't enough to win a playoff series. Yeah, I'm mean, definitely inclined to believe what you believe you. Um, yeah, because I mean, like I said, like this was another uh, regular season matchup that ended up. Actually, I think the Nuggets won three out of. 
the four games, if I'm not mistaken, just because, I mean, Nikola Jokic truly willed them to victories. However, when you look at the Warriors, they have a lot of playoff experience. They know how to handle themselves in the situation. I'm sure they'll make a lot of adjustments to make sure that the same things do not happen that happen in the regular season. So, yeah, I'm going Warriors. All right, last uh, matchup, we got the Dallas Mavericks and the Utah Jazz. Now, Luka Doncic's injury definitely complicates things. So, where you think, how do you think this plays out? Because of the Luka injury, I'm going Matt. I'm going um, Jazz in anywhere between five to six. Okay. I'm going to say... I'm going to say Jazz in seven just because hopefully Luka will be able to come back at some point, maybe towards the latter part of the series. But I don't know. I think the Jazz are a bit too, I'm not going to say toxic, but I think their team is a bit discombobulated right now. So their chemistry is off. And I think that that could have an effect on them throughout these playoff games, which could also lead to other Mavericks having good games. Like, for example, we've seen Spencer Dinwiddie have some really big moments. Tim Hardaway we've also seen. Um, and just a collective of guys like that. It'll just have to be an overall team effort to keep themselves in it long enough till Luka can come back. But even still, I got I got Jazz in seven. But all right, let's go ahead and move on to the Lakers because somehow, someway, they always find themselves atop of a conversation. And this time, it is because of their decision to fire um, Frank Vogel. What makes this situation a bit more different is it was reported right, it was like right before the game ended or like right after by Woj that the Frank Vogel was coaching his last game for the Lakers and that he would be fired on Monday, which interestingly enough, uh, following the game, Vogel was asked about it and he said he didn't know anything about that. Um, he did eventually end up getting fired. And it's led to a lot of people kind of looking at the Lakers differently for this situation. First things first, um, Draymond Green kind of talked about it on his podcast and said, you look at it as a player or as a co- or as a coach and you cringe because, let's be honest, Frank Vogel was looked at as the scapegoat for all the Lakers' problems. Do you agree that firing... Um, Vogel was a way for the Lakers to avoid all the other problems that they had, or do you think that the Lakers were right to get rid of Vogel? I think he was the scapegoat. I think that because I've, me and both of you stated throughout the course of this whole season that I personally feel like the, the issues with the Lakers were roster construction. It wasn't him as a head coach. It was the fact that they – I don't even want to go to the fact that they brought in a bunch of older players – because that, that in and of itself, that could be a benefit. But they brought in a bunch of players that didn't mesh well on the court. Like you had, you literally had a bunch of guys that were kind of offense, offensive-only players. Like you brought in Russell Westbrook, who he's, he has had moments where he's been able to play good defense, but he's not known as a good defender. You bring in Carmelo Anthony, who's not a great defender. Um, Like... You bring in again with Russ. You bring in a guy who whose game doesn't gel with with the likes of a LeBron James. Like I think they just brought in bad players, and I understand that at some point people were talking about like you know they could have brought in DeMar DeRozan, and and like even with that, like I don't know if that would have been the end all be all because you're just bringing in another ball dominant guy that needs the ball in his hands to score like you need I feel like with the Lakers 
should have done was they should have went after Buddy Hill, who yeah. was a guy that can score with the ball in his hands without the and without the ball in his hands, who's a knockdown shooter, and they should have filled their roster up with other perimeter defenders and role players because they get those years where they were looking back to being like a, a formidable team. It was LeBron, AD, and really good role players. Mm-hmm. They asked for a walk for absolutely nothing. Danny, I know a lot of people had black for Danny Green for his performance in the bubble, but you can let Danny Green walk, who was another good role player. So it's like, I think that they went the route of trying to find the way to a championship with big names versus taking the actual route that they might have needed, which is just signing guys that fit their roster better than the ones that they signed. Yeah, and unfortunately, they're not the Los Angeles Rams, so it did not work out in their favor. But, yeah, I'm in total agreement with you. I mean, like you mentioned, you and I talked about it all season, just the personnel decisions. I don't want to say the team was doomed before the season even started, but it was not looking good. They didn't look like a finals team. I mean, they needed those role players. They needed guys off the bench who could provide a scoring boost, and they just did not have that. Then add on top of that a whole bunch of injuries, it was it was a terrible year. But teams, I mean, people are also criticizing the Lakers for how they went about firing um, Frank Vogel. As mentioned, even before the game ended, the regular season finale ended, it was reported that he was going to be fired and he knew nothing about it. So um, it's even gotten Jay Williams on ESPN to kind of talk about the vacancy and said the Lakers are one of the worst jobs in the NBA. And apparently, Jack. The Utah Jazz head coach, Quinn Snyder, is reportedly less interested in leaving Utah for L.A. after seeing how Vogel's firing took place. So, in your opinion, do you feel like how the Lakers went about getting rid of Vogel is going to hurt them in their chances of trying to acquire a a great head coach? Yes, because I agree with Jeff Williams in saying that it's one of the worst jobs because, A, you're dealing with arguably one of the biggest, if not the biggest egos in the NBA in LeBron James, a man who, for all of his greatness, everyone knows that a lot of times LeBron, like, the best way to put it is, whenever LeBron doesn't succeed, it's always the coach that gets scapegoated out. You look at his time in Cleveland where when they brought in David Black, and they were winning and looking good initially, but then they hit a skid. They immediately fired him or signed Ty Lue. Yeah. And everyone thought that that was a great decision, but in actuality, they just made improvements to their roster. So I think it's a bad job. And also, like, the way that they fired Frank Vogel is, like, it didn't, in my personal opinion, it didn't come across as professional. Like, yeah. this man still had a game, he had the coach. And before the game basically even started, it was already announced that he was going to get fired. Like, I would, if I'm a head coach, I wouldn't want to go into this situation because it's like, okay, so who's to say I go on the ski and it's not, and it's technically might not even be my fault. So I'm going to get fired in a in an unprofessional way because of, yeah, so it's just a bad situation. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's hard. One, it's hard enough being the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers because there's such an air of this is a winning program. This is a winning team. And if you are not helping the team win, you got to go. And that just comes with being in a huge market and a successful team. And then you factor in coaching LeBron James where it's like, 
all right, that's even tougher because, as you mentioned, you're going to get scapegoated a lot. And not to say that LeBron doesn't take accountability, but it's very rare that, I'll say this, teams don't put the blame on LeBron. Fans might and media members might, but the team itself, if something's not going right, they're not going to blame LeBron. They're going to blame the coach. And don't get me wrong, LeBron did had a fine season this year, but, I mean, he's 37. What do you, what do you expect him to do, especially with not a great team? But I can understand why L.A. does not seem like the sexiest destination just because do I really want to deal with the pressures of coaching L.A. and then, two, if you have LeBron James on your team, if you don't win a – if you don't make it to the finals, you're pretty much at risk of losing your job. Or as you mentioned, if you even hit a skid in the season, even if it has nothing to do with you, even if you're, it's your players who aren't producing – you could risk losing your job. It's not much job security there. So, yeah, I can understand why it would it would turn off candidates. And I feel like because it's the Lakers, they're going to find somebody, but it may not be who they really want just because it's not the best spot. But let's continue the conversation of head coaches in our game of Believable or Buffoon. And we're going to start things off with Greg Popovich, who after the Spurs lost to the Pelicans 113-103, to he was asked if this was his last game that he would coach, and he did his best to avoid the question, would not give a definitive answer. Ethan, Believable or Buffoonery, in your opinion, is this the last year that we've seen Greg Popovich as the Spurs head coach? I'm going to say Yeah, I'm going to say believable too, especially, I mean, buffoonery as well, because I don't want to say that the Spurs over outperformed their expectations, but the fact that they made it this far, especially considering they ro- the roster that they have, is I would call that impressive because DeJounte Murray had a really good year. I think that he definitely, you know, should be in the conversation for most improved player. But you also got guys like Keldon Johnson who played well and guys like that who are not exactly household names. However, Coach Pop helped get them to nearly a playoff spot. So I think that that definitely should be commended. And I think that taking this year away and seeing what they can do in the offseason to potentially bring in some other guys – I think that that would be a nice – I think that it would be a nice send-off for Coach Pop, especially if he can get them to the playoffs. All right, sp- speaking of other playoff-caliber people, let's talk Joel Embiid, who you and I both believe should be the MVP of the league, even though, of course, there are some other viable candidates. Uh, Kevin Durant also agrees that Joel should be MVP, but said, in Joel's case, more people like Giannis and Jokic. It's as simple as that. So, believable or buffoonery, Joel Embiid not being as likable as other MVP candidates is why he may not win the award. Um, I can see some belief behind it. I also just think that in the case of Jokic, the reason why he might be getting such a big push is because of the state of his roster, like I stated earlier. Whereas, Joel Embiid, his roster wasn't that great to begin with. Well, I'm not going to say it wasn't that great, but... It was better than Jokic's roster. And then you, but the case for Joel, in my opinion, is the man has been dominant the whole year. He's the first center to win the scoring title since Shaq. And I think that maybe a lot of people are looking, kind of just looking at the more recency of what Jokic is doing because it's kind of been this thing of like, who's going on a tear more recently? Yeah. Because earlier, 
Joel B was all going on a tear, and that's when everybody had him as the MVP. And then Yogi's went on a tear, and everybody had him as the MVP. And then Yogi's went on a tear, and everybody had him as the MVP. And then Yogi's went on another tear, and that's when his his MVP talks gained some more steam. So, but I personally think this being more so what it is has been like who's been the better player more recently versus him being like. Because Joel Embiid is a likable person. He's funny. He's hilarious in a bad. Yeah, I I can see belief to it as well. I think it just kind of comes down to, like, marketability. And I think that we know Giannis. He has the look. He has the championship. And, I mean, he's also been playing lights out. You look at Nikola Jokic. He's a great underdog story. Was, I believe, the first ever second-round pick to ever win MVP. And then you look at the roster that he's doing, he's winning with. That is commendable as well. And then you get to Joel Embiid, who... Also, look at his roster. I mean, prior to the addition of James Harden, I mean, it definitely was not one of the best ones. He's dominating. But I guess, for lack of a better word, if you look at drama, I guess. I I wouldn't even necessarily say Joel Embiid gets into drama, I guess. But of the three guys, I think that there's more people who who aren't as much fans of him as Nikola Jokic. So I think in terms of, like, the likability thing, I think that's what KD was really referring to. But, all right, let's go ahead and move on to a guy that everybody likes, Ja Morant, who Jamon Green said should not be the MIP, a.k.a. most improved player. He said, Ja Morant is not an MIP candidate. Ja Morant was freaking awesome last year and instead nominated his current uh, teammate, Jordan Poole, for the award. While John Moran did play well last year and for a time was even mentioned in this year's MVP conversation, do you think that it is an inevitability that John Moran is going to win the Most Improved Player Award? I think they are going to give it to John simply because they can't give him the MVP award. Fair. Because I honestly agree with John Last year, John Moran was a borderline all-star anyway. The only reason he didn't make the All-Star team last year, in my, in my opinion, and probably a lot of other people's opinions, was the fact that the Western Conference had so many great guards. Like, you still had Damian Lillard at the top of these powers. You had Chris Paul. You had Devin Booker. And you couldn't just fit in a young second-year John Morant, who was ascending to the All-Star team. This year, granted, he made another ascension to a superstar status, but he... He was already a really good player. And I agree. I think it should be. I don't think it should be Jordan Poole. I think it should be Desmond Bain. But I do think that if John Morant winning that award, really, I feel like it's just one of those things where it's like they're going to give it to him simply because they know they can't give him the MVP. That's fair. I could see that argument. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is believable. Probably if I had to pick an MIP, it'd probably be uh, DeJounte Murray. I think DeJounte should definitely be in the running for it. But, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, Ja, I think if Ja hadn't gotten hurt and missed a couple of weeks, he definitely would have strengthened his argument for MVP. I don't think I would give it to him over, like, Joel Embiid or Jokic. But he still would be up there. But most improved, I think that that's going to be the route that they end up going. Uh, Continuing on with awards, Michael L. Bridges, 
for the Phoenix Suns, said he wanted his respect for his defensive play. He said, I think that people take it for granted how tough it is to guard the top perimeter players in this league and not be able to really touch them because they're going to get the foul call. I don't understand how guards in general don't win defensive player of the year. So, believable or buffoonery, Michael Bridges deserves more attention as the league's defensive player of the year for this season. Oh, uh, yes. I'm going to say yes. It's also hard because I'm biased when it comes down to the defensive player of the year. I also think it should go to James Jackson Jr. But my thoughts on the defensive player of the year award is I personally think they should make two separate awards for it. I think that they should make one for a defensive player of the year as far as a, from a perimeter player standpoint mm-hmm. and from a power forward slash center standpoint. Because the reason the reason of it being is when you look at the history of the defensive player of the year award, it's only been a handful of perimeter players that have won it. Most notably Gary Payton, Michael Jordan, um, and Kawhi Leonard. But that award has been notoriously noted kind of more so as a big man award. But you have great defenders on the perimeter. Like, you've had guys over the years. You've had a Tony Allen who, in my personal opinion, should have won the award the year that Marcus all won the award. Yeah. You have guys like, um, like now, Mikael Bridges, Marcus Smart. You have guys like um, a prime Jimmy Butler when he was at the top of his pals as a defender that probably should have won the award. So I think that there's some validity to it. I think that they should just make two separate awards, best perimeter defender and best interior defender. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I doubt that they're going to do that because then I feel like it would be a conversation of, well, why don't you make uh, MVP of the Eastern Conference, MVP of the Western Conference? They'll probably try to make arguments for splitting up all the awards, and I don't think the NBA is going to do that. But, yeah, I find belief to it as well because Michael Bridges did have a, have a great defensive season, even though his stats may not reflect it as much as, like, an interior defender. I mean, he has done a really good job and was easily the best defender in Phoenix. So, yeah, I, I'm totally in agreement with you. But, all right, last question, talking about Braun Braun. So, after the Lakers missed the playoffs, everybody had something to say about it. And, of course, one of those people was Stephen A. Smith. Um, following the conclusion of the season, uh, Stephen A. said, the GOAT conversation is officially over. It was never there for me. Uh, it was always Michael Jordan first, LeBron second. But if ever there was any doubt, this cemented the fact that LeBron James cannot be considered the GOAT. So, believable or buffoonery, the way that the Lakers season ended ends LeBron's argument for being the GOAT. Bro, this man is 37 years old. Like, you're taking him away from... You're, taking, you're quote unquote taking him away from the GOAT conversation because he didn't make the playoffs at year 37 because his front office, and maybe him also being a part of their decision-making, decided to get the wrong roster. And who also, his second-best player was hurt for a significant amount of time, and LeBron was actually hurt for a significant amount of time. Granted, I don't... I can understand it, whereas, like, you know, he might not be in the conversation. Because in my opinion, I think that the second person in that conversation should be Kobe because he's always overlooked. Because it's always been Jordan LeBron, but it's like Kobe's was it's right there. He he was like Michael Jordan reincarnated in a sense. But 
you you saying all this because this man missed the playoffs at 37 years old, where he averaged 30 points a game. Like his longevity and the fact that he was able to play at that level at 37 alone, in my opinion, still keeps him in that conversation. Yes, he didn't make the playoffs, but you know, basketball is a team sport. Yeah, I'm also saying buffoonery for that. I mean, you know, I don't consider LeBron as the GOAT. I've been banging the drum. Even not being a fan withstanding, I would put Kobe Bryant over LeBron James. So even though I don't consider LeBron the GOAT anyway, I don't think that I would use this year as a reason for that. I mean, hell, if anything, it kind of strengthens his longevity. Like, yeah, he got hurt, but he was still... Um, for a time, leading the league in points per game. He was only ineligible for it towards the end because he got hurt and didn't meet the game requirements. Other than that, LeBron, when he was on the court, was a dominant player. He was help- He was the best thing the Lakers had going every night he was on the court. So I just, I don't think that this has anything to do with it. Like, what, do you expect him to make the finals every single year? You expect him to make the playoffs every single year? That's not realistic. So, yeah, no. Hard no for me. I'm saying uh, buffoonery on that as well. But that is our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, please should be sure to check out the Xreport.net. I repeat, the Xreport.net for exclusive sports content written by yours truly and fellow Xreport writers. Previous episodes of our lovely podcast, our YouTube channel, entitled The Xreport. Ethan, anything you want to say before we close out this bad boy? Go, girlies. Uh, let's get this done. Saturday Yep, because it's pretty much game seven for both, for all the teams. So, yeah, I'm in agreement with you. Go Grizz. Like I said, I was rooting for the Grizzlies in the playoffs this year. Uh, so I want them to have as much success as possible. And plus, I, I, I just want to – I just don't want to see the Timberwolves win anything. I just want to see Pat Bev lose. Mainly because he talk, he talk a lot. But also, uh, oh yeah, NFL Draft fans, my 2021 NFL Draft review is out. As you all know, we do it every single year. I break down the top three best and most disappointing performers from every round of the draft and just give analysis, stats, all that good stuff. So be sure to check that out at theexport.net. And um, yeah, uh, my latest uh, NF- 2021 NFL redraft be coming out within the next few days so me look out of there so a lot of draft content coming out but thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you all next time